Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mo Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. As this episode comes out uh, in the United States, it's summertime, and that means tanning. Tan. Not for me, never for me, no. Tan that up, don't, because that's not good for you. Yeah. Just I, don't do it. I'm but, just, I mean, I guess if you do the fake tan. The fake tan. The spray tan. Yeah. Well, we're we're talking about the spray tan today, or rather, Pasco host Kristen Caroline are, because this is a classic episode. Uh, but we thought that this one would be a good one as we as we move more into this, this summer um, and for me, trying to avoid any tanning or getting burnt. Sunscreen, y'all. Sunscreen. Um, but where did, where did this history come from? Yes. If you're curious, you will find out. Um, and we hope that you enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the show, it's two pale white girls <laughs> talking about tanning. That's right. Uh, my whole life, I have been blindingly white. Um, my Scottish-Irish heritage would have it no other way. Uh, I am so white that a few years ago, I say a few, it was probably like 15 or 10 years ago, my friend's mother saw me in a bathing suit and said, Caroline, you are glowing. And she didn't say this because I was pregnant. She, you know, thank God, she said it because I was so white and standing in the sun. Sounds like she really had a way with words. She really did. Uh, And so I have since then, not because of that, but just over the course of my life, every summer, I buy tanning creams. Uh, yeah. Not because of the mom. No, not because of her. Okay. That was just like a part of what I already knew, Kristen, which is that I'm blinding when you put me in the sun. I'm like a mirror. I'm like a reflective surface, just beaming light back into space. I mean, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I'm. It's basically my superpower. And so I have tried out many a tanning cream, and I think I prefer, honestly, like good old Jergens, like the lotion that you use to build up a gradual tan. Listen, don't lose your superpower, though, Caroline. <laughs> I mean, you could be blinding street harassers left and right. <laughs> pew, pew. Someone whistles or honks at you. You just rip off your shirt. Look at my forearm. And oh. Like, oh, no. <laughs> So a few weeks ago, I debuted my spring legs in public <laughs> for the first time. And yes. I thought for I debated it all day in my head. And this is a little embarrassing to admit whether I should take an Instagram photo or not mm-hmm. just to share with the world because it was truly astonishing. <laughs> That's how I feel every year. Yeah. Looking at myself in the mirror. This is this is truly astonishing. Um, I I got my first spray tan ever last year. Do tell. Uh, you and I were on our way to New York to have our pictures taken in our underwear. Oh my gosh! Don't we sound so glamorous, Caroline? Uh, or creepy? But this was for Dear Kate uh, underwear, and I got a spray tan. But I made sure because I am so pasty, not to go very dark. I specifically requested like a light, honey-hued spray tan just to make sure that I didn't like blend in with the white background of the photo shoot, just so that I actually stood out so it didn't just look like a floating tank top, like floating bangs, tank top, and underpants. Again, it sounds pretty cool the way you describe this. (laughs) But yeah, but, but I was conscious of... I don't want to look fake or tacky. I want to look like a nice, honey-hued, suntanned, happy, healthy version of myself. And it looked great. Oh, thanks. But I have a question. It might be TMI. I've got a question for you about your spray tan experience. Yes. Was it one of those spray tan salons where you have to get completely naked and the person sprays you by hand? Yes, ma'am. What was that like? And did they, 
on your rear make mm-hmm. you bend over? Oh, no. Yes and no. Um, so I didn't get fully naked uh, or naked, but I wasn't up to anything, so it's really just naked. Um, I stripped down to my underpants. and you, a, Your bloomers? My bloomers and a, and a very, very nice, very nice young woman uh, sprayed me. And, you know, I have to stand like I'm in the security check at the airport. And instead of you're not like bending all the way over, uh, I'm not going to make a bad joke. Um, I just sort of like pitched forward a little bit like I was losing my balance. And that's the way that she uh, got up in there. And next thing you knew, you were twerking and it just got so (laughs) awkward. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. You forgot where you were. I know. Like (laughs) I always do. (laughs) So we have so much to talk about Mm -hmm. in this tanning episode because, listeners, we're not just going to talk about how you get a tan and melanoma risks and things like that because we have talked about skin cancer and tanning on the podcast before. But in this episode, we really want to dig into more of the cultural aspects of it, why it's popular, especially for pasty-skinned white ladies like myself (laughs) and and you. Mm -hmm. But really, I mean, like, I'm... (laughs) I'm in that club, too. Uh, And the class and race issues that also are so embedded in our whole tanning culture. Yeah. Because, I mean, forever and ever, historically speaking, paleness, uh, almost translucent skin, has been the epitome of beauty. And it hasn't been until the last uh, about century that we've started seeing this kind of cycle of no tanning is prettier, no paleness is prettier, no tanning is prettier. And it seems like that cycle is speeding up because as Kristen and I were talking about before the podcast, before we came in to record, you have pale beauty. But then in like the 90s when we were growing up, you also had hyper tan Britney Spears. You had Christina Aguilera, who was hyper tan. Oh, yeah. I went to the tanning bed when I in my senior year of high school like regularly. Whoa. Yes. I got real basic that year. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but now, I mean, it seems like... And I mean, I guess it depends on, and I mean, we'll we'll flesh this out a little bit more in the episode, and it, it depends on your social group, what is considered most attractive and normal. It depends on the magazines and media you consume, what's considered most attractive and beautiful. But I feel like you've got some people who want to achieve the, you know, Jessica Alba glow, which is not so much a glow for her as it's her literal skin color. And then you've got other people who look at, you know, super translucent high fashion models, and that's more what they aspire to. Now, we got to be honest, though, Caroline, before we came into the podcast studio, you were arguing that the Jessica Alba, Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, who, by, by the way, these are all like wildly different skin tones, but that the more honey-hued look, as it would be described, is the in look now. Uh, yes. And as we talked about it, I think it, like I was, was saying, I think it depends on what is normal and beautiful around you. So, for instance, depending on, like I said, your social group or what your friends look like, that normalizes whatever the beauty standard is. Um, but also, it, de- it looks like it depends on age groups, too, as we'll talk about later in the podcast, because by and large, the people who are going to tanning beds and are committed to tanning like once a month at least tend to be younger women. And statistically, a lot of them are in sororities, which is really interesting. So this could be just an issue like achieving color-wise of different age and socioeconomic groups. Yeah. I mean, so, and listeners, I really want you to weigh in on this because I contended that the popularity of, of, say, Beyonce and Kim Kardashian has little to do with skin color and as it relates to tanning has little mm-hmm. to do with skin color and more to do with body shape and how our like beauty ideals in terms of uh, the quote-unquote sexiest female shape has changed you know more mm-hmm. toward um, those kinds of body shapes because I don't think that any like white sorority girls are going to the tanning bed 
so that they can look like Beyonce. And if they are, I'm a little concerned about them, to be completely honest. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Do you have people who have maybe tanning obsessions? Yes, that is a thing. People who get addicted to tanning. Is your average girl who's in a sorority addicted to tanning so she can look like Beyonce? Probably not. Um, But the very fact that that could be a possibility that uh, white people like us can get in the tanning bed, get in the sun, get mm-hmm. in the spray tan booth and play around with our color and achieve social status as a result of it mm-hmm. also speaks to a lot of privilege, too, that we're going to get into. Yeah. Because it's not like Beyonce can get into a spray tan and get like, you know, a, a white look. She can't get like the Emma Stone. Yeah, exactly. And And I, you know, that's. That sort of leads us into the conversation of black women enjoying tanning as well. It's not like this is just for white sorority girls to enjoy or to pursue. Um, But, I mean, it hasn't always been like that for black women either in general. Of course, we're speaking in general terms. The embracing of not only do I have the skin color, but, you know, in the summer, I want to get bronze too. This isn't just like a white girl thing. And that is exactly the theme of pretty much any blog post or article written by like a woman of color about tanning. Like the headline is usually in all caps, yes, black women do tan and we can get tan. I mean, there's even this notion that African-Americans aren't even capable of tanning, which I don't really understand because that, you know, demonstrates that that person doesn't understand how like melanocytes work and and skin pigment and how we react to to the sun. Um, But it's not just an issue of possibly, you know, your skin darkening as a result of being in the sun, but actually wanting to get that look, get that bronzed Glow. Yeah. And I mean, hello, we've been reading or I've been reading women's magazines forever that tout tanning, real or fake, you know, tanning bed sun or sun cream as a way to hide flaws, conceal cellulite, make yourself look a little thinner or whatever, or just like you've been on vacation, uh, which again ties into the whole like class and leisure thing, which we'll get into. Um, but yeah, again, this is that is a, a driving force. For a lot of people, no matter your uh, ethnicity, I have a, a one of my best friends is Korean, and I realize one of my best friends is Korean. Uh, it, it's not like that. Um, and every summer, she just she loves tanning. She loves to get a bronze look. And she was telling me about how some of her friends back home were like, you know, why do you? need to get darker. You're already like beige, you know, you're fine. And But she loved getting those tan lines in the summer, getting a little darker, getting a little color so that you don't look, as she put it, like sick when you go back from summer vacation. Yeah. I mean, because of course in Asia, it's far likelier that the beauty ideal is to be as pale as possible. You'll see, you know, women walking around with umbrellas and big hats on, you know, shading the sun as much as possible. Um, but I do want to get back really quickly to black women tanning for a minute because this definitely is going to tie into our next podcast, which is all about colorism. Um, in a Huffington Post blog about, yes, black girls also tan, Melissa Henderson wrote something that jumped out to me. Um, she wrote, black girls tan too. These girls are not one type of people. It's just putting colorism in another category, letting other morals take precedence in one's life. So whether you choose to Instagram your tan or prefer sitting poolside, tanning is a beautiful thing. And that insistence that, yes, we we tan, and also, hey, it's totally fine and not weird at all that we would want to tan mm-hmm. is another theme that you see in a lot of uh, these blog posts in particular, like first-person pieces about it. Um, for instance, there was a piece over at Black Girl Long Hair talking about, um, I think it was a beauty vlogger who a few years ago put up a side-by-side of her before and after getting a spray tan. And um, it was on YouTube. And half the comments were really supportive, saying, oh, you know, I, I was about to do a spray tan too. I'm glad to see that it looks good, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other half being completely dumbfounded as to why on earth would you want to be darker? 
You ha- yeah. you look so much better with lighter skin. And that question, though, which the blogger raised in relation to that of, is it seeding a quote-unquote privilege, that we'll talk about more in the next episode, that comes with lighter skin and how like strange that might seem. But the reasons for for tanning and wanting, you know, to to play around with maybe uh, fake tanners, spray tans, things like that, are the same reasons that a lot of us are interested in getting a little bit of a tan because it often even out, evens out your skin tone. It can mask uh, cellulite and other quote unquote flaws mm-hmm. and blemishes. And also laying out in the sun, as we'll talk about more. I mean, it just it feels good physiologically. Yeah, releases to, all those happy chemicals. Yeah, for us to get that vitamin D. So yeah. I feel like it's... Which is not a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like uh, it's pretty racist to assume that uh, black women in particular should not want to tan and that it would be weird if they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, but there's so many interesting uh, class discussions to be had when it comes to tanning and color because where is that line? You know, we we look at someone who's got a nice, you know, quote unquote natural tan and we're like, ooh, she looks rested and healthy. But is that we- what you uh, thought when you saw my calves a couple weeks ago? <laughs> yes, I was like, those calves look so healthy. They look like they've been hibernating all winter. They've been on a vacation. You can see the patches of really long hair that I missed <laughs> in my first shave of the season. Right. Um, <laughs> I like to picture a conger hibernation. You're just like holed up with like some glamour magazines and a laptop, some like granola. But then clearly we enter a different arena of class discussion and appropriateness when we get to people like Snooky, who once told an interviewer that her ethnicity is tan and someone who like tan mom do you remember this woman oh i do how could you forget well she has legitimate addiction issues she legitimately has mental health issues and she got in a lot of trouble because she took her like four-year-old to a tanning salon and uh, but she literally was the color of my leather laptop bag that i carry around and now i was just reading an update on her she has moved from being addicted to tanning to now being obsessed with Botox. So, like, that's a whole different issue. But this is something that William Liu, who's the author of the book Social Class and Classism in the Helping Professions, writes about. He talks about this spectrum of, like, tanning being okay or not okay or signifying class or not. So you've got stereotypes about people with quote-unquote rednecks or farmers' tans. And he's, he writes about how in our minds, in popular imagination, this equates to white trash, people who do manual labor outside, who aren't you know part of the leisure class, who aren't going to hop on a cruise ship. And so he asks if a demarcated tan is a sign of lower class. What does an all-body tan represent? Oh, I mean, it, it means that it's intentional, that you were— Going out and tanning, assuming, I guess you were at an all, like a nude beach or you went to a tanning bed if it's like an all body tan. Um, but yeah, I think it, it is totally different. And that absolutely resonates too, Caroline, with being raised in the South because mm-hmm. that whole quote unquote redneck division between classy and trashy mm-hmm. is very much alive and well. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, my my parents uh, had us do yard work pretty much every weekend, which was so fun, always. Um, and during the summertime, sometimes I would get the so-called farmer's tans, and I would be embarrassed by it because it would mean, oh, Kristen wasn't at the pool with all the other kids. She was out picking up sticks and pine cones and mowing <laughs> the lawn. Did you Did you ever name the pine cones? Did you keep any as pets? Only a few. Only a few. Only, only, only Stephen. Only Stephen and Richard. <laughs> um, don't forget Jennifer, the pinecone Jennifer. Ugh, um, Jennifer was a little difficult. Yeah. Well, no, I I remember, you know, friends having, usually boys having like a farmer's tan, so to speak, because they'd be wearing T-shirts around or whatever. And to me, back then as a kid, that would just mean like, oh, you haven't been to the pool. Yeah. yeah, you've been you've been running around doing other things, not playing. 
But I mean, in like my little childhood perception, I was already so classist in the way that I saw the quote unquote rednecks. And I'm saying quote unquote because saying redneck does, I mean, it's such a pejorative, um, I don't think it's a very, a very uh, nice term, um, because it is connected to the whole white trash concept. And it does, in my mind, it takes me straight to counties right outside of where I grew up that were much more rural and people tended to spend a lot more time outside. Mm -hmm. And that super duper tan to the point of being red look is, I mean, a byproduct of maybe doing, you know, labor outside, maybe working if you're on a farm, but also a look that the girls will cultivate too. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that demonstrates what William Liu is talking about when he wrote how, quote, tanning becomes another venue for performing and demonstrating social class, both, I think, in the uh, the act of tanning yourself and also how we interpret other people's tans. Yeah, because someone like Snooki, for instance, let's just she's easy to pick on and use an, as an example, but like to someone who flips through the pages of Vogue Snooky might look trashy because of her choice of tanning depth. And I will say, because I do follow her on Instagram, Caroline, that she has eased up on her tanning. <laughs> well, but she is clearly performing and displaying her definition, like we've talked about at the very, very top of the podcast, about the difference between what you want to achieve in terms of color and why. But she's clearly performing her version of classy and attractive. Totally. I mean, and same thing with the the dudes on Jersey Shore who would yeah. like go and get their their spray tans. What is it? Jim Jim Tan Laundry? Jim Laundry Tan? Oh, yeah. I was like, Jim? Was one of them named Jim? <laughs> <laughs> Forget. Jim was the, like the random. They had like a tagline. <laughs> I think it was GTL. Jim Tan Laundry. Oh, man. I just want to think least... about like random like bookish gym that we never saw on <laughs> Jersey Shore who didn't fit in at all. Never went to to the tanning bed. Um, but let's why don't we hop into why this is even a thing? Because like you said, historically speaking, it's bizarre that we like collectively would even attempt to darken our skin because for most of beauty history, Pale was where it was at. I mean, and that's a cross-cultural thing, too. But, I mean, we would apply, <laughs> like, potions on our skin to get as porcelain a look as possible. Yeah, and, and that was because pale skin was supposedly a mark of beauty and wealth and refinement, whereas tan skin meant you were a peasant. Uh, you were those Monty Python characters in the mud toiling away at manual labor. Uh, not to mention dark skin was, of course, looked down upon because of the literal racism aspect, the literal hatred and racism against brown and black bodies. Uh, and women would maintain their paleness with parasols, large hats, bleaching treatments, and heavy powders, not to mention lead-based creams that dated back to ancient Greek and Roman times. And in the Renaissance, I thought this was so funny, European women would draw blue lines on their faces to make their skin look translucent. That sounds so hard to do. I mean, that, I, mean I, I feel like contouring today is really challenging to pull off, <laughs> but try vein contouring. I I know. What do you what do you even do? I mean, what what kind of beauty blender could achieve that look? I'm just saying, Caroline. <laughs> and, you know, literature was in on the game too. Milky skin has always been hailed as the height of beauty and purity. Folks like Shakespeare wrote sonnets praising it. And early topical sun protectants, when you when you look at the ingredients, it really takes me back to our makeup artist episode, Kristen, when we talked about the crazy history of pancake makeup before Max Factor came along. You've got things like white petrolatum or almond oil mixed with a heavy powder made of things like magnesium, zinc oxide, or bismuth. 
So sounds really good for the pores. Gotta really slather that on. Ugh. Sounds like. Um, but we start to see though, tanning slowly becoming a marker of social class and wealth with the Industrial Revolution because around 1850, we start transitioning from the working class being outside to them being inside, in the factories. So, understandably, you have tan skin beginning to emerge as a sign of the leisure class. You have the time to be outside. You can travel. I mean, if we go to F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1922, The Beautiful and the Damned, which was set in 1914 and 15, his up-across characters talk about how to best achieve a tan. Oh, yeah, man. His characters and his books just love the beach, don't they? God, West Egg tanning, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> cheersing with champagne gif. Still have never, yeah, that's all I know from that movie. I still haven't seen it. I think that's kind of all you need to know. Yeah, okay, good. It's, it's a really effective gif in a lot of situations. And yeah. yes, I do say it with a hard G. Write me a letter. Um, but, you know, not everybody is on board necessarily. Some people are still worried. You've got a little bit of benevolent sexism going on. In 1905, Dr. Charles Edward Woodruff wrote in his book, The Effects of Tropical Light on White Men. Which, is that a prequel to Tropic of Cancer? <laughs> I don't think well, so. Well, no, literally, yes, because sunlight is a precursor to melanoma. Oh my gosh. Look what we just that did. That was a really extended pun and I am proud of us. Yeah, we should be. You should be. Uh, anyway, so Woodruff wrote, the American girl is a bundle of nerves. She is a victim of too much light. But he would prove to be in the minority because what helped bring, aside from just, you know, the lower classes <laughs> moving into the factories, what helped bring a nice tan, a nice flush into popularity was, you know, the entire freaking medical community. Yeah. So in the early 20th century, doctors started realizing how sunlight and the vitamin D that we get from it can be really healthy for us, particularly to treat tuberculosis and rickets. And rickets is one of those old-timey diseases that, yes, Caroline, I did have to Google to make sure I understood what rickets is. Um, and essentially, it's a bone softening disorder. Yeah. Because you don't get enough of that vitamin D. Well, vitamin D, but also you're not getting enough nutritious foods. You're not getting enough calcium. Um, it would often, kids with rickets would often have horrific problems with their legs being misshapen. Uh, so you you get this this rush of the medical community uh, basically prescribing sunshine to people, which sounds really nice, uh, but people were winning Nobel Prizes over it. In 1903, Niels Finsen won the Nobel Prize in medicine by treating skin ulcers caused by lupus vulgaris, which is a condition linked to TB, with heliotherapy. And that same year in Switzerland, we get the first hospital treating tuberculosis with sun exposure opening. And doctors start to figure out the scientific basis of uh, heliotherapy in the 1920s, when they discover UV light's role in creating vitamin D. And then for another Nobel Prize, in 1928, we have Adolf Windaus earning the Nobel Prize in chemistry for linking vitamin D with Ricketts treatment. And, I mean, sunlight was seen as a preventive measure, too. Kids were sent to preventoriums. Which I love it. I know. I want to go. <laughs> Which were institutions that provided sick kiddos with good food, fresh air, and sunlight. Like, I do want to go to there. So they basically sent them to summer camp, but fancier. And more relaxing. No color wars and good food. Less pressure than having to, like, swim the lifeline. Um, Let's bring back the preventorium. I'm, dude, I'm all for it, uh, which really just sounds like I need to build a greenhouse outside of the office and go sit in it for a couple hours. And order some pizza. Right, totally. Uh, take my lactate first. In 1938, Herman Bundesen, who was the president of the Chicago Board of Health, really emphasized how important sunlight was for children. Uh, he said, no deficiencies that develop in children are of greater significance than those caused by lack of sunlight. I, I would argue there are some bigger problems that kids could face. But anyway. No, nope, just <laughs> no, sunlight, Caroline. No. 
Uh, he continued on. He said, when it shines on a child, it helps his bones and teeth to form properly and promotes the quality and circulation of his blood. The sun bath is just as important as the water bath, which reminds me of our Betty Page episode because Betty Page was such a fan of uh, sun baths in the nude. Yes. Well, and that does kind of tie in to our next fact about how sunlight starts becoming prescribed as treatments for all kinds of things, including anemia, syphilis, heart disease, cancer, which, a little ironic there, stomach problems, and also issues with hormones, arthritis, skin, and vaginas. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what the exact heliotherapy prescription would be for your vagina. Yeah, you can't use the phrase where the sun don't shine anymore. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, do you, do you try to get sunlight on the vagina? Because that would know. be hard because I think they mean vulva. And I just have a lot of questions now. I Yeah, when you talk about solving gynecological problems with the sun, what exactly are you referring to? Just put your vulva under a heat lamp. <laughs> All your problems will go away. Uh, but, you know, not everybody was on board. The New England Journal of Medicine in 1928, their editors reviewed the book Ultraviolet Rays in the Treatment and Cure of Disease. And they dismissed it as really nothing more than a giant ad for UV lamps and said that they hoped the quote-unquote laity did not get their hands on it. But any concerns regarding skin cancer at this time were ignored. Any concerns about this stuff just being a bunch of fancy snake oil were ignored. And all were outweighed by the perceived benefits. Oh, yeah. Esteemed medical journal, The Lancet, declared in 1910 the face browned by the sun is regarded as an index of health. And note, though, I mean, like, we can, you can peel apart so many layers in just in that statement of the face browned by the sun yeah. is good. Not if the, the face, if you're born with the brown face, mm, not so good. Yeah. The face browned by genetics. That was not, they didn't include that. So, therefore, you get a tan. That means you're in good health, which means you're beautiful. Yeah, and speaking of beauty, we got to get over to fashion and hop to the lady who, in pretty much any popular history of tanning that you read, will be cited as the one responsible for getting us all to the beach and sunburning ourselves accidentally. And that's Coco Chanel, of course. Yeah, uh, she of the tweed and pearls. And Nazi sympathizing. True. Yeah, that's everything you love is problematic. Um, in 1929, Miss Chanel caught a little bit too much sun while cruising around the French Riviera. As you do. As you do. You can't help it. And her take on it, shrug, a girl simply has to be tan. And a golden tan is the index of chic. And we were looking at a study that analyzed ads and articles in Harper's Bazaar and Vogue. And it was astonishing to see the upswing just between like 1927 and 1929 in the number of tanning-related ads and also tanning-related articles. Um, back in 1923, Vogue advertised its first tanning lamp. But those kind of ads were really few and far between until that pivotal moment in 1929. Um, for instance, that same year, British Vogue declared, pay attention, Caroline, okay. <laughs> this is the backless age. Oh. There is no single smarter gesture than to have every low-backed costume cut exactly on the same lines so that each one makes a perfect frame for a smooth brown back. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, swimsuits, are they talking about clothes or swimsuits? I don't know. I mean, I think they're just saying, like, avoid tan lines oh. and, and get... <laughs> <laughs> get a tan. <laughs> you pasty white jerks. Uh, I mean, well, because I asked that because over the course of the 20s and 30s, we have stats, people. Swimsuits were shrinking. Skin exposure jumped from 18% for women and 23% for men to a scandalous 47% of their skin exposed. Oh, man. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if swimsuits <laughs> still just revealed 47% of our skin? So the same year, British Vogue 
declared the backless age. Okay. Don't you know? Uh, American Vogue had a four-page spread describing clothes, makeup, and accessories to best show off tanned skin. And they said, from a chic note, sunburn became a trend, then an established fashion, and now the entire feminine world is sunburn conscious. Yeah, similarly, in the same year, June, Harper's Bazaar had an issue titled, Shall We Gild the Lily? Which began with the assertion, there is no doubt about it, if you haven't a tanned look about you, you aren't part of the rage of the moment. Well, and who is the audience for these magazines? Wealthy white women, women who can afford to change out their fashion, go to the beach or wherever they might be to have the rage of the moment look. And it really only increases as people have more disposable income. I mean, the tanning fad is really inextricably linked with socioeconomics. Yeah, but I mean, again, the people who are reading these high fashion magazines, being those fair-skinned upper-class white ladies are the ones who shouldn't be unprotected in the sun. And so at this time, the same time that we're seeing this backless trend and this tanning trend take off, we're also collecting growing evidence in the medical community that UV radiation leads to tumor growth in animals. And you get more studies that associate UV rays with skin cancer in humans. And by the 1950s, we're seeing this huge increase in melanoma, which continues to rise throughout the 20th century. And non-melanoma skin cancer becomes the most common cancer in the world in the 20th century. But that doesn't stop anyone from getting out in the sun. Yeah, I mean, because who doesn't want to be the rage of the moment? I mean, that weighed against cancer. I mean, come on. I think that I think Vogue wins, obviously. (laughs) You got to die of something, right? (laughs) Oh, God. This podcast just got so bleak. Yeah, totally. So let's go to France. Oh, yes. For a paid vacation. Um, France introduced paid vacations in the 30s. And by the 40s, this had spread. And you see increased travel, outdoor activities, and pop culture that's even more favorable to tanning and also revealing clothes and swimsuits. And you probably see this permeating pop culture as well, whether it's films that take place on the beach and show men and women around pools being glamorous in their swimsuits. Um, Or, of course, you know, you have your your fashion magazines that are teaching you exactly Mm -hmm. how you should look. Well, in 1943, Hello War, fabric rations meant that women's swimwear had to shrink by 10%. And this swimsuit shrinkage opens the door to something you and I have talked about on the podcast before, Kristen, the eventual invention of the bikini in 1946, which this leaves 80% of your skin open to the sun. And so you've got so much more skin to tan, so many more outfits to feature all of that non-genetic brown skin. And listen, during World War II, Ladies were busy. Rosie the Riveters didn't necessarily have time to go to the beach and go get a tan directly from the sun. So during the war, women would actually rely on tea bags to stain their skin. And apparently in Britain, there was some Marmite-ish sounding paste or bouillon (laughs) that they would use. They would soak their legs in that. People soup. People soup. We're just making people soup. <laughs> they soak their legs legs in Soylent Green. <laughs> and uh, No, it just sounds like let's fill up the hot tub, throw in some bouillon cubes, and let's all go for a soak. <sighs> yeah, it's horrifying. Again, this podcast got so dark. <laughs> Ooh, uh, yeah, exactly. Tanning. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, in the 50s, though, in the, in the post-World War II era, we're like, hey, the GIs are coming home. You probably already have a tan because you've been outside a lot, but let's... Let's replicate that. (laughs) Trench tan. Yes. Uh, You have man tan in the 50s, which is the first commercially available self-tanner, I believe, for men, specially designed for men, which specially designed is in quotes because it's probably the exact same thing as what was being sold to women, but maybe smelled differently. Um, And it promised to be moisturizing and long-lasting. Yeah, it just smells like pine trees and cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Don Draper's office. (laughs) oppression. Uh, well, by the 1960s, you know, we, we've we've seen 
the, the subtext here is the rising middle class, the rise of leisure, the rise of vacations. And so by the 1960s, people have enough money to enjoy color film, so you better look good, and commercial air travel. And by the 70s, the, wor- the world economy was tanking. Thanks, war. Uh, sunless tanning really takes the place of all of those Mediterranean vacations that people in Europe specifically were taking. 1978, tanning beds get introduced. And the first one, which I never knew, in the U.S., opens in Arkansas. Well, Walmart and tanning beds. Oh, Arkansas listeners. Hey. Hey. And if you jump to 1981, you've got about 10 new tanning centers opening in the U.S. each week. By 1988, (laughs) in the U.S. alone, you have 18,000 tanning centers. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of tanning. And typically, like nowadays, you look around and tanning, they are next to Walmarts. You've got like a Walmart and a nail place and a tanning place and a Radio Shack. Oh, the Radio Shack. Yeah. I, I'm Like my dad, I think there's some still open. Okay. Because Chad goes there. Someone let us know about Radio Shack. <laughs> um, yeah, growing up in a college town, there were tanning salons everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. But I feel like now, Caroline, where we are in town in Atlanta, we're likelier to see more spray tan outlets than we are tanning bed spots. Or places that do both. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of talking. Well, I mean, I think, I don't know. From what I've observed in kind of uh, bougier neighborhoods, you're likelier to see spray tan. Yeah. Well, I mean, more class issues that we can dive into. Oh, yeah. It doesn't stop people. It don't stop. You can't. Sunscreen won't protect you against. (laughs) The rest of this episode. Yes. (laughs) Because we're not done. In the 1980s, you've got all of that glamorous, like, 80s crazy makeup, which includes a lot of bronzers. So the popularity of bronzers, uh, economic boom times mean people are taking those glamorous beach getaway packages Which essentially means that tanning remains a necessity through the next couple of decades. And by the year 2000, uh, British people in a survey, 50% of them said that getting a tan was the most important reason for going on vacation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember so well just laying out on my parents' patio because we didn't have a pool membership and just sweating and sweating and sweating. And trying to enjoy it. I remember reading the unabridged Les Mis one summer because it was uh, reading for like my AP English class, (laughs) humble brag, (laughs) Um, and just baking myself outside. Yeah. Well, I remember laying when I hit puberty and had some really bad skin issues, I was encouraged to get some sun to help the zits go away. Little did I know that while, because we talked about this in our acne episode that while yes the sun can help fade some of those acne marks it actually only makes them kind of come back with a vengeance because the sun inflames the skin and any corrective like quote-unquote treatment the sun has for acne is really more effective on that youthful acne not so much for the adult hormonal acne so jokes on me and my fine lines and wrinkles. Man, the sun can be such a jerk sometimes. Such a jerk. Sometimes. Um, but speaking of age differences, we have a lot more information to cover, and we want to dive into some demographics and all of that class issue stuff that we've been hinting at when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the number one tanning demographic, specifically when we're talking about tanning beds, are white girls, young white girls. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Studies have shown that white teen girls of a higher socioeconomic status are the most likely to tan both indoors and out. And I'm going to admit, I was actually surprised by the higher socioeconomic status aspect of that. And and maybe that's judgy of me, and I certainly don't want to sound like I'm passing judgment, but I, I do feel like I nowadays read 
in magazines and blogs so much about protecting your skin and not tanning either in a tanning booth or outside, you know, stick to self-tanners if you want to get darker. Um, that There was just like my gut when I read that stat was like, oh, I, I didn't realize like there was such a drive. But then again, this is possibly due to an age difference thing. Yeah. I mean, rich girls aren't necessarily smarter about their skin. They can probably afford a dermatologist and good makeup. But if they are, for instance, in a sorority, there's a pretty good chance that they will also tan. I mean, I think it's also like your your in-group beauty standards. If everyone around you has a tan, then you're probably going to get called the pale girl. <laughs> no, that's not from personal experience, although I'm no. sure I've been called the pale girl. But Certain, um, no, that is my experience. Um, so there, there's probably a little bit of a peer aspect in there, and it takes disposable income to tan. I remember when, when I tanned my senior year of high school, which I know I'm going to regret like already with certain freckles that I have, um, I, I had to pay for it myself. My parents were like, listen, we're not going to pay for this for you. And it was pricey. I should have saved my money, Caroline. But young kids. I know. Not, I didn't. Not to sound like an old, but they don't know better in terms of feeling invincible. Oh, totally. My mom warned me every single summer because all I wanted was a tan so that I could look, you know, to get that social cred that comes with it. Every single time she would warn me about getting sunburned and sun damage because yeah. in her generation, you would sit out with the Ooh. those foil reflective plates. Sally used baby oil. Oh, yeah. So did Nance. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. Speaking as someone who fell asleep face down on the beach one time and like couldn't wear real clothes for the rest of the summer because my back was so blistered. Yeah. Like I'm going to have to answer for that at some point because, and I mean, like I don't want to like keep going on and on, but the reason that you now are seeing more and more states passing regulations against younger and younger people visiting tanning booths is because that early sun damage, early, early, like early teens, especially blistering sunburns is a super major significant predictor of skin cancer, not to mention just all of the wrinkles and sunspots that you're going to get. And so it's kind of frightening when you read that 2.3 million teens use tanning booths, tanning indoors every year. And they're probably vaping while they do it. (laughs) Kids these days. Vaping. And the CDC in May of 2011 found that it's interesting that regionally, they found that the people, the women tanning the most were in the Midwest and the South. I'm so not surprised. From 18 to 25. And that for most of these people, men and women alike, it was a regular habit. These people reported going to a tanning bed 10 or more times in the past year. And they're likely supplementing their tanning bed experience. You know, Kristen, you talked about seeing a lot more spray tanning places. Uh, The things go hand in hand. People who use self-tanners are two and a half times more likely to use tanning beds and get five or more sunburns during the summer. So these are clearly people, though, who are hyper-focused on changing the color of their skin. Well, those people could say, listen, I've got research to back up my tanning habit because it makes me look more attractive. Um, There was a June 2012 study in the journal Pediatric Health, which found that our motivations for tanning tend to do with looking better. And young people also cited relaxation, mood enhancement, because it does release those endorphins, and also socializing. There's the peer influence aspect. You want to fit in. Um, And it also cited a study of college students that found that what their friends thought and the desire to appear attractive had more to do with it than a desire to look healthy. And that's, Mm -hmm. like, no surprise. Yeah, I was praised as a child. It's so sick. Uh, But but Sally definitely, I remember, you know, I'd come up from the beach as a young kid and hop out of the shower, and my mom would be like, oh, sweetie, you are brown as a berry. And she thought it looked so good on her (laughs) 
on her pale little child. And I was like, yeah, I'm hot. I mean, I didn't think that. But um, this other study of college students found that when orientations toward, and that just means like you have a higher interest in doing or pursuing, uh, orientations toward appearance, outdoors, social norms, and perceived consensus increased, the attitudes toward sunbathing became more Positive. And I mean, in case we haven't hammered this home enough, a 2008 Journal of Health Psychology study found a significant association between tanning bed behavior and popular peer crowd identification. And you've got the same basic idea for self-tanners, except this time... In this particular study, it was participants' romantic partners' support for a tanned look that positively reinforced self-tanning behaviors. I mean, this that does harken back to Jersey Shore. Gym tan laundry. Yeah. But, I mean, at least they're neat, right? They're doing their laundry. Good oh, exactly. for you. And the thing is, we, whether we are actively tanning ourselves or not, do perceive tanned faces as prettier. Uh, this was uh, some research reported on by ABC News. Um, there was a study out of Emory University which used Home Man, a real throwback website, hot or not, posting pictures of the same person but with one version tan and one version pale. And the tanner version received uh, twice as high of an attractiveness rating compared to the pale one. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Audrey Coonan, who's a dermatologist and founder of Derma Doctor Inc., told ABC News that, yeah, I mean, I hate it, but basically people think tanned folks are more attractive and healthier looking, and it's super hard to get somebody to stop doing something that makes them feel better, especially younger people. She says younger folks have a hard time seeing themselves as getting older and having to deal with these risks. I know I did. I was like, I look great now. What's the issue? But then... You, you know, you do look around and, and you look for that uh, there's something about Mary character on the beach and, and let that be, let that serve as a warning of the ghost of, of Christmas tan, f- future tan. Ghost um, of Christmas sunburned. Well, yeah. And, and Mark Leary, who's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke, basically says that, yeah, the tan has not lost that Chanel significance, uh, even though it's 100 years old. She says we just, he says we just haven't lost it as a signifier of a leisure class yet. And Autumn Whitfield Madrano, friend of the podcast, writer of The Beheld, focuses a lot on beauty issues. She says not only does it serve as a sign of affluence and health, But it's also the perfect accessory. She says it's the sweet spot between conspicuous and inconspicuous consumption. Yeah, I loved her description as it being the ultimate expression of, oh, this whole thing. (laughs) And it's true. Yeah. I mean, and I I totally agree with the Duke professor that it's still a marker of leisure class and— all of all of those all of those issues, I think, are still embedded pretty deeply within it. Whether you are getting a tan out in the sun or going to get a spray tan, because also I think the very seasonality of it supports the class element. Yeah, because like I have definitely looked at tan friends before. You know, you come in Monday and you've got a little bit of color. I've definitely looked at tan friends before and thought like. Oh, man, you had time to go to the pool this weekend? And, you know, for me, like, I could probably be out for five minutes and turn beet red. I'm so freaking pale and shiny. But just the idea of, like, oh, God, you had time to, like, sit down by a body of water. Maybe you read a book. Like, I fantasize about leisure time. Like, maybe you had time to read a book and have a cocktail and enjoy the sun and some conversation. Maybe a beach ball was involved or some floaties. That sounds wonderful. But on the flip side, if someone shows up in the wintertime, and again, this is this has been a super white conversation, and I'd say that this is another white observation. If someone shows up in the summertime, or in the winter, excuse me, when we're supposed to be all pasty, and she's super tan, or he's super tan, because I have a gentleman friend who tans in the winter as well, it is usually perceived a little more trashy than classy, I would argue. Yeah, like what are you trying to prove? Yeah. Or like, mm, I don't know about I don't know about that. <laughs> and I wish there were more studies like on that whole that line. Right. That we we did listeners like try to find some scholarly insight on that whole 
tanning spectrum classy to quote unquote trashy because it's very much there, but it doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, so anyway, scholars listening, <laughs> if you if you need a study, there's one. But going back, Caroline, to the very beginning of our conversation where you mentioned uh, the tan mom, mm-hmm. there can be some mental health issues associated with a tanning obsession, you know, the person who has to be tan. Um, mm-hmm. That same pediatric health study we just cited found that 30% of young people showed a level of tanning dependence similar to other substance abuse addictions. Yeah, and a journal of the American Academy of Dermatology study from 2014 found links between excessive tanning and body dysmorphic disorder and OCD. And those things make sense to me. I mean, like body dysmorphic disorder, a lot of times that shows up as obsessions with weight. But you also see that translating into obsessive plastic surgery, obsessive Botox. So it makes sense that tanning would be linked with that. It's also, according to a 2012 behavioral medicine study, linked with higher appearance orientation and depression. So appearance orientation, meaning just a hyper focus on your appearance. And it makes sense, though, that people who are hyper-focused on their appearance are going to do things, like we mentioned, uh, that they perceive will make them more attractive. And as for the depression link, which mainly they found was associated with indoor tanning, researchers write that users could be unknowingly self-medicating to feel that relaxation effect, that rush of endorphins. And so researchers wonder whether depressive symptoms might inhibit people from wanting to go hang out on a beach in a bathing suit and instead opt to do indoor tanning, privately get that boost of endorphins. Because conversely, they found people with better body image were more likely to go sunbathe outside around a million people rather than just stay indoor tanning. Yeah, I mean, and further research has found that while we might be likelier to ignore those cancer warnings, women are very much vigilant about the sun's aging effects because, oh my gosh, if we're talking about beauty standards, I mean, women who look older are usually devalued in that way. Right. And so, I mean, I think that kind of holds the key in terms of deep tanning being a trend and how do you break skin cancer from trending. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of that doesn't go to like, hey, you might be one of those statistics who gets skin cancer and dies because researchers have found that that backfires. It seems like kind of the key perhaps to anti-tanning and skin safety campaigns really lies in like, hey, you're going to be wrinkly and then you're not going to be pretty. You're not going to be pretty, so watch out, wear a wide-brimmed hat. And the good thing is hats are very in right now. Yeah. Um, But we also have the government stepping in because (laughs) we obviously, like, can't abstain from this very unhealthy habit. So at this point, 12 states actually banned tanning bed use for people under 18, and 42 states regulate tanning bed use by minors in general, um, sun lamps now have to carry black box warnings saying that people under 18 shouldn't use them. Although, I mean, really, any age, shouldn't that be a, a thing? Kind of like, you know, well, the warnings on cigarette packs? It's exa- well, that's the logic. It's exactly like the warning on cigarettes because— Unless you're, what was it, California? Who just raised the age to 21 for buying cigarettes? I think California. Yeah, I think it was California. But like Georgia, for instance, like 14 is the minimum age for using tanning beds, but you have to be accompanied by a parent. Blows my freaking mind. Does that have anything to do with like our like high number of competitive cheerleading squads? I don't know what it is. I don't know. I mean, in Georgia, I recently learned you can also get married at 16 with parental consent. So. There's just a lot of issues here. Um, But, okay, in 2010, the Affordable Care Act included a 10% tax on indoor tanning services. And I did not, I missed this whole uh, news trend on maybe it was just like the more conservative side of the Internet. Apparently, a lot of people said, you know what, Obama, that's racist. That is a racist tax because white people are primarily the ones who use these indoor tanning beds. And that ain't flying, Obama. We, we got you on this one. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. 
Yeah, that that sound you heard when Kristen was talking was my brain exploding. Um, yeah, there was an Atlantic article because there's one on everything. There was one on tanning and the politics of it. And they did talk to a tanning salon exec who was just outraged by the federal regulations encroaching on Americans' right to use tannin beds. Well, also do a Midwestern accent, Caroline. It's not just a South. I don't know if I can. Can you? Oh, no. <laughs> as much as I can. Um, but I have a feeling that what will be a far more powerful force than the FDA to steer us away from tanning and damaging our skin is the fashion world. I mean, if Coco Chanel is the one who brought it in vogue, then it's probably going to take a comparable fashion magnate to get it out of vogue. And some would argue that that's already taking place. You have Verena von Fetten, who uh, I think was the editor-in-chief of Stylite in 2008, way back when Mm -hmm. now, saying tan is the new tacky, comparing them to Uggs. Yeah. All Ugg boots. I mean, really, honestly, half of the post was just about her hatred of Ugg boots. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, she she doesn't like uh, tans, associating them with more of a Jersey Shore type culture. Uh, and then a little more recently, in 2013, USA Today said that a copper tone complexion isn't looking so fresh this summer season. And I mean, even just among anecdotally conversations with my lady friends, It might be partially an issue of welcome to 30, but we are far more into complimenting each other's (laughs) fair skin tones um, and slathering on sunscreen and wearing wide-brimmed hats, uh, certainly more than we used to be. Yeah, I, I need to be so much better about wearing daily sunscreen. I mean, I'm great about it if I'm going to the pool, going for a hike, anything like that, you know, extended outdoor exposure. But I am so bad about the day-to-day sunscreen use. That's just why I carry a ski mask with me. I just pop that on anytime I go out. That's a thing with women in China. That was also mentioned in some of the articles we read. And that was not so much an issue of, I want to look like a white person. But again, related to the issue of, The paler skin is a marker of breeding, high class, status, whereas the darker skin in China still signifies outdoor labor. And Caroline, I think that segues us perfectly into our next episode, which is going to be sort of the flip side of all of this and a conversation about colorism. Because all of these elements we've been talking about in terms of the socioeconomics, racism, et cetera, that have played a part in today's conversation um, are sort of a foundation for what we're going to chat about next time. So listeners, now we want to know about your tanning politics. What has resonated with you? And is there anyone listening who works for a spray tan salon who does the spraying? Because I really want to hear from you and know what it is like to airbrush other people's bodies. Yeah, and I I do. The women at the Atlanta spray tan place that I went to, you guys were so nice. I've only heard feedback like that from other girlfriends of mine who have gone and gotten spray tans. They were so nice and it was a great experience. And let me tell you, I loved it. I can wear less makeup when I have color on my face because I am so pale. So my dark circles just like pop out. My my acne scars pop out. So when I have a little bit of color, it's like such a breath of fresh air, fresh tanning juice laden air. So send us your letters. <laughs> MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Becca about our Changemaker series that we ran throughout March to celebrate Women's History Month. She writes, thank you for the Maker series. Currently, I'm working to open my own small business, and I love listening to you keep me sane and connected with the outside world while I knit, sew, and embroider. The Maker series was so inspiring and gave me the motivation to keep going even when I get overwhelmed. I quit my job last fall and decided to open my own business after a friend and fellow mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
She passed away 95 days later, leaving a loving husband, three children, and a huge hole in our community. Regina Wilson's words about her experience after 9-11 as a firefighter and the precious and finite nature of life touched so close. I found myself crying in the kitchen. After Laura's passing, I vowed to dream big and go for it. The podcast really touched me in so many ways and I just had to write in. So thank you and keep up the amazing work. And on behalf of Laura, I would like to request an episode of any aspect of cystic fibrosis. It was her dream to find a cure. Well, thank you so much, Becca. That means so much for us to hear and best of luck building your business. Okay, I have a letter here from Alyssa also about our Maker series. This one's specifically about our episode talking to Abby Wambach. Uh, She says, I related in a huge way to some of the things you guys talked about with Abby in your recent interview with her. I'm a junior in college and an NCAA Division II athlete. I play golf for Lubbock Christian University in Lubbock, Texas. Go Chaps! I've been very blessed with teachers and coaches who are so encouraging and supportive of female athletes, but I've experienced my share of sexism as well. The NCAA does a wonderful job overall of making rules to make sure that its athletes don't receive special treatment simply because they are athletes, but they aren't as good at making sure we aren't discriminated against. Unfortunately, my biggest example of the sexism that I have faced is from the NCAA itself. In the Heartland Conference within Division II, all of the women's golf teams in the conference go to a big tournament to determine who goes to the next level. If you're on a men's team, the top few teams go on to Super Region. If you're a lady golfer, however, there is a board who decides what teams move on past conference once the tournament is over. I've always almost jokingly claimed that I would write a strongly worded letter about the blatant sexism here, but I never got very motivated about it until I heard Abby Wambach talk to you guys about her Title X project, which, she says, reminded me of Title IX and put me on a thought train back to my frustration with this particular rule. Thank you so much for reading my super long and kind of ranty email. I appreciate you guys a ton. Keep doing what you're doing. And Alyssa, you keep doing what you're doing. Oh, man. Carolyn, you got to love all these women doing such incredible things. Um, Thanks for letting us in on what's happening with your lives. And you can send us your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is the email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about the politics of tanning, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 